Hebrews 13 this morning. For the past five months, we have been working through uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, an anonymous author, we're not sure exactly who wrote it, but we know he wrote it most likely prior to 70 AD before the temple was destroyed. He wrote it to a group of believers um, who were former Jews who were struggling with whether or not to, to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism. Um, Christianity was creating some difficulty in their life. It was an illegal religion, and they're having property plundered. They're having um, folks thrown into prison. They're struggling. And so they're asking the question, is Jesus worth it? Should we go back to Judaism, which is legally recognized? And the author has simply built 13 chapters of argument. It's really been one singular argument saying Jesus is sufficient. He is enough. He is better. If you leave him to go back to Judaism, you're leaving salvation behind. He's the only means of salvation. And so it's been a combination of encouragement, of warning, of of teaching, of reminding. And it's been really kind of heavy. Um, It's been mostly um, theology and kind of doctrine. There hasn't been a ton of practical, hey, and here's what I want you to go do. Because he's been laying out an argument that was really needed and necessary. And yet last week as we were in the end of chapter 12 and then this morning as we'll be in chapter 13, we're going to see a lot of um, like, hey, here's what I want you to do. Here are the things that I want you to do. And so this is one reason we preach this way, that if we were to just grab Hebrews 12 and 13 and you were to read it, it could be kind of a dangerous text because it could be very moralistic of like, here's the things you do and, and maybe Jesus will like you. And yet we know that's not the case, that he has been building this argument of saying, hey, Jesus has earned your salvation. He has paid the price. It's by his blood that the veil has been ripped and you have access to the Father now. And so because of that, if we're anchored in that, that Jesus is our hope and our anchor and our salvation, now there are some things that we can do to to walk in obedience after our salvation. But we can't separate it from the rest of the book. There may be a part of you that will hear Hebrews 13 and think, hey, this could be like 15 sermons because every single verse is almost its own little sermon. Um, But I want us to look initially at the very last of Hebrews 12 to just set a little bit of the context as to what is going on. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is consuming fire. And so, right, he's reminded them, hey, we've received something, an unshakable inheritance, an unshakable kingdom. We have King Jesus because of what he's done on our behalf, and he's brought us in. So he says, so let us offer acceptable, reverent worship. And so what chapter 13 is going to do is it's going to show what are some of these things that we can begin to do that will be acts of worship, that will show that we are trusting and loving Jesus in all of our life. All right. And so we don't want to detach that from the rest of Hebrews, but let's read uh, beginning in verse one of chapter 13. So let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. 
And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest is as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and hear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So we have there at the very end of 13 kind of this reminder that this was written right by someone to someone who he he knew. And even though we don't know who the author is, they knew him. He said, I want to be restored to you in verse 19 personally. That he said that he references a mutual friend in Timothy who's been in jail, right? That he's writing to a group of people that he knows their needs, their struggles, their issues. And that he's able to say, hey, this letter, this brief letter, right, would it minister to you? Would you take and heed the, the wisdom and the teaching that I've offered? And so... The first verse I want us to make note of is verse 15. That worship is more than a worship service. It's more than just what's happening here this morning. Look at verse 15. Through him then, meaning Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so it's reminding us, right, that the the life that we live, all of life, the lips that offer praise to him, right? That all of life is worship. Now, if we're honest, we know in a lot of places um, in the Bible belt, especially in the panhandle, right? That worship is usually seen 
is activity that happens specifically or solely in a church building, right? Or it would be solely kind of religious activity. Like if I'm doing a Bible study, that's worship, right? If I'm at the church, that's worship. But maybe even if we think about the Sunday morning service, you would not think of this moment as worship, but what we were doing five minutes ago was, right? As we were singing, that's worship and this isn't. And yet what scripture is going to clearly teach us, right? In, in Colossians 3, where it says, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it to the glory of God. Right? In, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says that we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, as living worship. That all of who we are, all of our life, every moment, Sunday morning when we're singing, Sunday morning when we're not singing, Tuesday afternoon, Friday evening, these moments we are either honoring and pleasing and trusting God and thus worshiping, or we're not. There's no gray, there's no on-off switch of I'm, I'm doing worship or I'm not doing worship. We are either pleasing and trusting God, and so we are giving a sacrifice of praise, or we're not trusting Him and we're dishonoring Him. There's no in-between here. And so what he's doing in Hebrews 13 is he's going to give them some specific examples of what life would look like, what life can look like to be offering worship in all of life. Remember in Hebrews 2, he told them, we have to be careful not to drift away. We have to be careful not to walk away from our faith. And so much of what Hebrews has been has been this encouragement of your salvation is not just a singular moment where then you can kind of leave it behind because you've got some fire insurance. But this is this constant striving and staying with Jesus, of pursuing Him and of knowing Him. And it's not that your salvation can be lost in that regard, but it's the way that we know that we're saved is that we continue to long for the things of Jesus, that we continue to want Him, to pursue Him, to look like Him, to reflect Him. And so if our life is drifting away, then we need to check... Do I know him at all? Right? Instead of going, well, I had a moment when I was six, and so I'm good, and I can do whatever I want. He says, no, those who endure are those who are marked with salvation. And so Hebrews 13, he's going to just lay out some some things that may be going on in your life that would show that you're not drifting, that you're continuing to pursue and to worship Jesus. The first one is this. Let brotherly love continue. And so we're not exactly sure if he is, because he's talking to a Jewish background audience, is he telling these Jewish Christians, hey, continue to love your brothers, right, who are also Jews, right, continue to pursue and to seek them, right? Or is he saying, continue to love one another in the church? Because both of these things are right and true and things that we're called to. That we are called to love those who are not yet in the church, and we are called to love one another, this is why John, Jesus would tell the disciples in John thirteen thirty five, right? That they will know that you are mine because of the love that you have for one another. That the love that we show one another will reveal that we have been marked by the love of God. And so you'll notice like, he's, there's not going to be any mention of singing, right? Of these things that we might traditionally think of as worship. But he's going to be talking about action and activity in obedience. And so the way that we love in our relationships, so this means at work, right? The way that we love bosses and coworkers, right? Reveals, are we trusting Jesus for our salvation? Parents, right? This is a, do we show love 
to our children who exasperate us, right? Who that you continue to have to persevere in discipline for, right? Like as you're beginning to think through um, kids who are young and driving you crazy or kids who are older and are maybe walking away from the things that you've taught them, right? As you're wrestling with these things, he's like the way that you show love and you pursue and you stay with them and you seek reconciliation and you seek good relationship. He's like, you are making much of Jesus and worshiping him in the love that you're showing to your family, right? That, that a Tuesday as you're sitting and looking at your four-year-old going, why would you do this again? And yet you're graciously bringing discipline as a father who would bring discipline or as a mother who would bring discipline that in that moment you are trusting and worshiping and honoring Jesus just as much as on a Sunday morning as you raise your hand and sing a song that's true. Right? He's saying that we would continue to show brotherly love. He doesn't say to the, to the easy people, to the kind people, to the people that you love, let brotherly love continue with those who are close to us, with those who are far from us. It means that we show love when there's misunderstanding, when there's conflict, right? That we are seeking reconciliation and not the breaking of relationship, right? That we want relationships to, to be strengthened, to continue. It means that we show love to those who disagree with us, right? That we can show respect without having to agree, And we do this because Jesus has pursued us when we were his enemies. When we were actively opposed and rebelling against him, that he has pursued us and rescued us. And so he says, look, if you're going to be marked by my image, then you're going to be able to pursue your enemies as well. You're going to be able to pursue and love those who don't love you back. Remember, he's writing to an audience who is being thrown in jail, who is having their property plundered, and he's not going, hey, make sure you love one another but those people who are being mean to you, no love for them. He's saying, if we're going to be marked by Jesus, if we're going to look like Jesus, then we pursue brotherly affection, brotherly love for people inside and outside of the church. He's going to continue this. Verse 2. So don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In this day and age, if you were traveling, the inns that were available for you to stay in, Super dangerous, very sketchy. Um, were known for being places of ill repute, um, for violence. They were super expensive. And so it was just not a place that most like law-abiding people wanted to stay. They wouldn't have felt safe. And so one of the things that would mark the church, so we see this in First Timothy, that, that a woman, he says, if you want to add a woman to the list that we're going to take care of as a widow, has she shown hospitality? That the list of requirements for elders and leaders in the church is this. Do they show hospitality? And hospitality, we've, we've said this over the years, is not just loving the people like you, but it's loving strangers. It's loving unbelievers. It's loving people who aren't like you. And he's saying, so are you bringing people in? Are you bringing them in and caring for them and taking care of practical needs? Are you aware and seeing them? And then he has this interesting phrase here. For thereby, some have entertained angels unaware. And what he's referring to is a story in Genesis 18, where Abraham is sitting out and he sees three strangers coming up. And he ends up taking them in and he feeds them and he washes their feet and he cares for them. If you continue the story of Genesis, what we know are these are 
right, this is, this is God, this is an angel, right? And they're headed to Sodom and Gomorrah because they have some business to take care of. And so he says, like, he saw them and, and, and viewed them as, as men, and he cared for them and he showed them hospitality. And what he was unaware that he was doing in the moment was he was entertaining angels, right? That he was entertaining those who had been sent by God to do God's work. And so he's saying, look, we don't know who it is that we're bringing into our home, but that we, we care for them, that we show hospitality, that we care for practical needs. There's a temptation in our society right now that in everything that we do is that we, we separate, right? Here are my people and there are those people, right? That, we're, that we're, people are trying to divide us based on political ties, based on financial things, based on ethnicity, based on belief, based on lack of belief, all of these things looking to divide. And yet hospitality is saying, come sit at my table. And I may not agree with everything you say, but you're welcome here. You're loved here. You're cared for here. And you're welcome to eat, to be taken care of. So it's why, church, we encourage you often to have people in your home that you don't agree with, right? That maybe don't know Jesus. Because in those moments, right, we begin to see people not as caricatures any longer, but as individuals. And individuals who, right, were created in the image of God. Who have a need that we too had. And that we were rescued. Right? That we were pursued when we were not the friend of God. We were the enemy of God. And that we can have those conversations in a safe place. Often um, in the Middle East, in Yemen, um, our, the Yemeni believers would say things like this. They're like, look, we can study the scriptures. We can kind of figure out what we're doing there. What we need to see is what it looks like. We just need to be in your life so we can see how you parent your kid and how you relate as a husband and a wife and how you have strangers in your home. Like, we need to be able to see your lives. And what we're doing here in, in loving the brethren and showing hospitality is you're inviting people in to see your life. Not that you're calling yourself perfect. Not that you're saying that you're the one to emulate, but you're saying, look at what God has done. Look at what he's doing in, in shaping and in transforming us. And that our home is a safe place. He continues in verse 3. So to also remember those who are in prison. We know that some in the church have been imprisoned. um, As though you're in prison with them. Those who are mistreated. There's been property plundered. Since you were also in the body. He's saying, listen, I want you to be hospitable. I want you to be intentional. I want you to be aware and to care for others who are struggling right now. Because they're a part of your family. They're a part of the body. So, so are, you, are you aware? Do you have open eyes to see others and to see the needs going on and know how you would minister to them? Right? For us, maybe it's the question of, right, are you aware when someone is, is struggling physically? Right? And able to minister to needs of things that they normally would be able to take care of and in the moment they can't. Right? Are you aware of them and looking to care for them? Are you showing sympathy and attention? I've been... Super encouraged. Many of you know we, we've had um, a young mom here at Redeemer who's had a really difficult fall, um, has been in the hospital for months. And what the encouraging thing at Redeemer was this, was we had more people asking to help than we had things for them to do. Whether it was visiting in the hospital, 
whether it was taking care of cleaning, whether it was taking care of financial things, whether it was caring for children, right? That there were people just saying, I'm aware of the needs. I know the needs. What can I do to help? Right? This is what, what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Are, are you seeing people who are currently down and going, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Yes, I'm going to point you to Jesus. And I'm also going to involve my life. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up my life and put it in yours and take things in your life and I'm going to bring it into mine. Right? Because he says, I want you to remember those that are in prison. I want you to, to care for those who are mistreated because they're a part of the same body. Right? That we are caring for one another. And so he's saying, listen, as you love one another, as you show hospitality, as you care for one another in difficult situations, you are worshiping Jesus. He then gets into to marriage, to relationships, and money. Remembering this is a pagan culture, right? Where sexuality would have been very fluid, where finances, right? In most cultures, like greed is just kind of the driving um, force. And he's saying, so we are going to be salt and light. We're going to look different. So I want marriage to be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And keep your life free from the love of money. It's like, I want you to be countercultural here. And that you value the family. And you value marriage. And that you don't simply say that the main goal of life is to pursue more money. And to, and to pursue more pleasure. Do we see that, that God is the giver of the things that we need? And he doesn't say to have much money is a sin. Listen, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Not in the having of money, but in the love of money. Paul will write to Timothy and say it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Listen, we know that in finances, right, we, it reveals whether we trust God. Do we trust Him to care for us? Do we trust that He sees our needs and is aware of what we need? It shows if we have contentment. It shows if we have distrust. It shows if whether we believe the things in this world are really more valuable than the things that are eternal. Remember in Hebrews 11, Moses, it's, it said in verse 26, that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. So, so Moses right, grew up in, in Egypt. In the Pharaoh's home, he had all the wealth of one of the most powerful nations in the world, and he leaves it behind because it's Jesus, right? God is better. And I want the reward that's coming from him rather than the reward of a mere few decades in this life. In Job, this ancient text, Job writes this in 31, chapter 31, verse 24. If I had made gold my trust, if I had called fine gold my confidence... If I had rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. Verse 28. Then this would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If we find our security, our contentment, our peace, our stability in the fact that whatever line we see in our bank account, right, and it's different for all of us. If we see that, then we're like, okay, I'm good, I'm secure. I'm stable, and that's what provides it. Versus saying, there's a God in heavens who knows me, who knows my need, who cares for me, 
who pursues me and who has said, I will give and do and care. Right? And it doesn't mean, just like we talked weeks ago, that suffering isn't even, finances aren't even in this world. But are we trusting God? And so he tells them, he gives them a promise here. He says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So he's saying, when your bank account is much or your bank account is little, God is saying the same thing. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I am with you. Right? It's the promise he made to Joshua when they're going into Canaan to begin to battle, to take the land that was promised to them. And he's like, we're this like nomadic people and these are these massive armies and, and big people. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you and that's all that matters. I will take care of what needs to be dealt with because I am with you. And so in verse 6, he, he quotes from Psalm 118. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The fact is, is we know that man can do things to us. That there can be struggle and trial and hypocrisy and lies and abuse and neglect. And he says, but God is with me and he is for me and he will not forsake me. And he is working for my good. Right? And so we, he says, church, the way you view your checkbook will either be honoring and pleasing and trusting in worship. Or you'll be showing yourself as one who does not trust God. Right? Like he's saying, it's not just the songs that we sing and whether we close our eyes and raise our hand. He's like, but it's in the way that we spend money. It's in the way that we think about money. It's in the things that we trust. Are we content with much or with little. This is Paul's thing. He's like, I've learned to be content when I've had more than I need. And I've learned to be content when I've had too little. Because God is with me and he is for me. So whichever situation we find ourselves in, is that what brings our contentment? Or is it God who knows us, who cares for us, who has promised to not leave us, nor to forsake us? And so these first six verses, he just said, listen, the way that you live in this regard will show that you are honoring God and giving acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then he gives another one. So if you look at verse 7, and then we'll look at verse 17. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And then verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now listen, this is a a passage that could be super awkward, right, to preach um, for someone. But but here's the thing. He's saying, church, I want you to submit, to listen to the leaders that God has placed over you. And a couple things we want to note here is one is it's leaders. It's not leader. It's plural. There's not the one. And so even here at Redeemer, right, that's why we have a plurality of elders, right? My tongue got a little tied there for a second. Um, That it's not just Jeremy, right? But there are others whose vote matters, right? That I don't get an extra vote, right? That I'm one of the leaders that God has placed in this moment, in this time in history to help lead this church, that as we follow Jesus, who is leading us, right? That we're not somehow infallible. If, we, if you remember in Hebrews 11, as it goes through this hall of faith of all these stories and examples, what did we see? People that we knew both the good and the bad in their life. Their sin and their struggle and their doubt as well as their faith. 
He is not saying your leaders are unable to sin. He's not saying that they're unneeding of grace. Or that you don't need to know the word of God so that you can question them occasionally. Or that if there's sin that you would be able to know it and approach them. He's saying, but let's trust that in general, your leaders want what's best for you. And are going to point you to Jesus and are going are to care for you. That this should be the hope and the expectation. Not that they're perfect. Not that they're absolute. Not that they're not fellow sinners in need of grace. So you need to know the word so that you can see the weightiness of what they've been asked to do and to trust and to pray and to encourage. Church, this also means that those who are older in the church have a responsibility, older in age or older in faith, to let younger folks into their lives, to see what it looks like to trust Jesus over the long haul. Right? Because there's some of you who right now, if someone was to walk into Redeemer and see you, they would be, like, honestly pretty impressed because your marriage is put together, you've got a good job, your family's, right, and you're, you're pursuing and loving and following Jesus, and yet if they only knew what five years ago you looked like, or like ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or however long it's been, that they would look at you now and not see you in the way that you would even see yourself, because they only see a glimpse, a portion of time, rather than the whole story. And so are we willing to invite people in and say, here's how the Lord was faithful when my marriage almost didn't make it. And yeah, marriage is good now, but there was a time. And here's how the Lord was faithful and how Jesus was enough when my kids, right, nearly killed me. <laughs> right? And yeah, I know they love Jesus now, but, but look at what happened. And here's how Jesus sustained me. Right? And here's how Jesus sustained me when I lost my job unexpectedly. Here's how Jesus sustained me when my wife got sick, right? And we begin to invite people into our lives to say, look, and to consider, and to know, and let's pursue this together. So it's not just our leaders, but it's also our folks who have walked with Jesus a little bit longer. Verse 17 is ultimately a call for membership, right? Because it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So here's the question this morning. To whom will I give an account? To God. But for who? For who? Is it every believer in West Texas? No. Please, God, no. Right? Is it every believer in Pampa? No. Because others have submitted to other churches. So then, right, it's, it's to this local body. And how do I know who to give an account for but to those who have said we're in with you? Right? And so this is one of the... There's not a passage in Scripture where it says, Thou shalt join a church. Right? But there's this idea of membership where we're saying, I'm bound to you and you're bound to me. And if, if you're ever in a church where the leaders don't take this serious, if they don't see the significance, that I will stand before God someday and give an account for how I shepherded your soul. Like, how can we look at that flippantly? Like, how can we look at that as not a weighty and massive task? This is not a job of arrogance or pride or independence or control, but of humble dependence saying, God, please. Right? And so the the leader's task in this passage is to kind of look at the totality, to look out and to see where there are threats, where there are warnings, what's going on in culture, and where is the word calling us to? 
Where are people beginning to drift and to coast and to say, no, 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 come back, endure. Let's get to the promised land together. Like This has been the whole theme of Hebrews is let's get there together. And that God has placed some to help kind of lead that charge as we follow the chief shepherd who is leading and guiding us. And then one final section that we'll look at. In verses 8 through 14, we kind of have the final encouragement, the final reminder to the church. Don't leave Jesus. Don't return to Judaism. And he gives this kind of analogy here. He says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just this anchoring verse. And he says, so don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food. So many religious teachings want to give diets and, and food restrictions. He's like, we're strengthened by grace. Verse 10. We have an altar from those who serve the tent. We, they, have, they have no right to eat. So what he's going to do here is he's going to go back to Leviticus 16 and talk about the Day of Atonement. The day where the priest would go in and, and, and have a sin offering and they would take that offering. And typically the priest would get to eat the body of the animal that was sacrificed. But on the Day of Atonement, they would take those animals that were sacrificed outside of the camp and they would burn them. And what they're saying is we're removing our sin from within. We're taking it away from us. And so the priest didn't get to eat the sacrifice that day. So he's taking this Jewish background believers and he's reminding them of a story they would have known well. And he says, and so now the accusation is, is that we don't have an altar to worship at because we've left the tabernacle. We've left the temple behind. And he says, but listen, we have a tabernacle that they actually can't eat at. Right. And he says the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And he's bringing that imagery up. So in verse 12, he says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He says, listen, Judaism rejected Jesus. And they took him outside their holy city, outside the gate, and they crushed him and they murdered him. And he was broken and crucified and his blood was spilt. He said, outside the gate. So he said, so do you want to be inside the gate? Or do you want to be outside? Because sins were paid for outside. And so if you want to go back in, know that there's an altar and there are sacrifices, but there's no sacrifice that will save. So he's saying that, look, this is, you're either an in or an out situation. And he reminds them for, in verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So he said, you're right, there's no altar that's been built. But we're looking forward to an eternal city, one that we are called to, that we are being taken to. It's the same one that Abraham was looking to and seeing dimly, that we see clearly that Jesus is the one who will get us there. That he is the shepherd that's moving us to the Father, who will gain us access once and for all. So he says, listen, the cross is offensive, but it is where we find hope. In life, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So be discerning and await that eternal city that is coming for you. Don't just go back to familiar religious tradition. So church, here's, here's where we're going to wrap up this morning. Chapter 13, as we wrap up this whole book, he is saying, 
I want you to live lives that please and honor God. That's going to be worship. In addition to the songs that you sing, the way that you pursue Jesus, the lives that you live will show that you're honoring him. Look at verse 16. So do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Church, if there was a sacrifice that we can make this morning that would honor and please God, we would make it. We would. But what he has told us is that the death, the sacrificial system was the last sacrifice, and that was Jesus. And the sacrifices that he wants now, we see in David from Psalm 51, are a broken and a contrite heart. Here he says the sacrifices that we make, right, are the things that we do in trusting God. And in not neglecting to do good and sharing what we have. As we trust Jesus, our lives become worship. Hear how Paul says it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world. Right? Our lives of trust and dependence are worship and sacrifice and saying that, Jesus, you're sufficient. You're enough, and I want you. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Listen, the, the order matters. That it was Jesus's sacrifice that allows you now to walk in worshipful obedience. That Jesus has established this for you and that God has raised him from the dead. So he says, we have this great shepherd who is going to get us there. He is going to get us there safely. He's going to lead us behind by the still waters. He's going to lead us to the places to eat. He's going to nourish our soul and he is going to get us to the promised land that Moses was unable to get them to. He is going to do it. He's going to accomplish it. And in the meantime, verse 21, he will equip you with everything good that you may do his will and he'll be working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Listen, God is your father and he is pleased with you. He is not impossible to please. He is pleased in you because Jesus has satisfied him. And because Jesus is continuing to work about sacrificial worship and obedience in you. He's telling the church, don't leave. The shepherd's moving you to a city we cannot yet see. He'll get you there. He's equipping you. And church... Would we move from the songs that we sing to the very lives that we live as a way of pleasing and honoring him so that he will receive the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, that's Hebrews. Would it minister to your soul? And would we see Jesus as sufficient and enough for us this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. God, would we be a people who would not see worship as merely a 40-minute activity one day a week? Would we not see it even as our time in, in the word or in prayer at home? 
God, what do we see that the lunch that we'll have today and our interactions with people at that table is worship? That the way that we'll relate to our boss in the morning will be worship or it'll be dishonoring to you. That the way that we'll spend our money this week will either be worship or it will be dishonoring to you. God, that we, the way we relate to our children or our spouse or our neighbors or those who would bring pain into our lives, God, is either trusting you that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that you're equipping us for all that we need to do. God, or we're not trusting you. God, would we see the bigness of this and would it feel weighty? God, because we want to know you and we want to reflect you and we want to please you. So, Father, would you give us wisdom? And would you be glorified this morning with the worship that we sing and the worship that we, that we live out? In Jesus' name, amen.